That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. There are these few defining moments in your life, and they're, they're not usually what you think they're going to be. And for me, the buildup of... I'm in this really unhappy marriage. I'm really young. I'm at this point, I think, 24. And I have nothing. I have no education. I have no marketable skills. I have no money. I'm dependent on this person who I don't love anymore. And I was so scared. And so the courage that it took to leave him and pursue a new life was one thing. Then when the car broke down in the driveway and it was winter and I was just sitting in that car and I just thought, this can never, ever happen to me again. Hi, everyone. You're listening to The Females, a podcast from Career Contessa that deep dives into the world of women, work, and what it takes to build a successful and fulfilling career on your terms. This season of The Females will explore the world of meltdowns and comebacks. I'm Lauren McGoodwin, CEO of Career Contessa and the host of The Females. Today's guest is Jennifer Romolini, the self-proclaimed misfit whose career memoir, Weird in a World That's Not, a career guide for misfits, fuck-ups, and failures, speaks to the souls of women everywhere, myself included. Before she wrote the cliff notes on career truths, Jennifer was the chief content officer at Shondaland.com, with yes, that Shonda, formerly known as TV producer Shonda Rhimes, and was also editor-in-chief at some pretty prominent companies like Hello Giggles, Yahoo Shine, and Lucky Magazine. All that sounds glamorous, but before Jennifer became a star in the world of online content, she suffered setbacks, feelings of otherness, and self-doubt just like the rest of us. Born to teenage high school dropouts who worked their way into entrepreneurship, this is not a story of privilege. It is a story of unapologetic triumph and hard work. And it's precisely that insight and perspective that makes Jennifer the unconventional career coach we all need. In this episode, she's answering all the tough questions, like what to do when you feel jealous about another person's job, how to manage millennials, and why we're so obsessed with an image of success that's also a complete fallacy. And a quick heads up, Jennifer's never one to mince words, which means a not safe for child's ears word or two included in this episode. All right, Jennifer, I want to start at the beginning with Philadelphia. Okay. Tell us about your childhood, your upbringing, all the way until you got to New York. Okay. 
we'll, we'll try to do this quickly. <laughs> um, so I was raised by um, teenagers, basically. I mean, they started out as teenagers. My parents were 16 and 17 when they had me. Um, they were both high school dropouts. Uh, they became, over the course of my childhood, small business owners. They were very entrepreneurial. They were very smart. Um, and we were small business owners all growing up. I and mean, we didn't have a lot of money when, you know, when I was very young, we had very, very little money. We were we were pretty poor. Uh, we lived in a HUD house, et cetera. Um, but over the course of my life, we became comfortable middle class. So I think that that really shaped for me quite a bit about work and work ethic and what it is possible to do. I mean, now certainly I had the privilege of, and they had the privilege of being white, but um so, you know, the American dream is flawed and bootstraps are flawed, but I did learn a lot from, okay, identify something you want and then go after it and step by step and you can get there. Um, but there was no one around me who had a white collar career. So I had no conception of what it would be like to work in an office or you know, to have a college degree, to have a pedigree, to network, to have a parent who could call in a favor from somebody else, to go to school with people who would go on to, you know, be in the careers that I wound up being in. Were you, did you aspire to the white collar careers and corporate life that you were seeing or I mean I, I don't think that I ever wanted to be like a lawyer you know like <laughs> right. it wasn't like I was ever like let me put on some hose and but I aspired to a fantasy particularly of a New York fantasy particularly of a 70s New York fantasy of a professional woman mm -hmm. you know like you know with like the the tie blouse and um I wanted, I really liked, always liked the depiction of magazines and movies. I mean, who doesn't? And book publishing. And I think somewhere I I knew that's what I wanted to be or an artist, something. New York was really, I think, the, the pull for me and a level of creative and intellectual sophistication, not necessarily money. I was never, and I'm still not, uh, driven by money, but, you know, ideas and people around you who were thinking creatively and firing and you know on all cylinders and like just living these big lives that's right. what I really wanted well I think that's why people still want to go to New York is that's things are moving fast people are moving fast ideas are being thrown around very creative that's right and I know you went to college and you had uh you dropped out and then you went back can you tell us a little bit about that so if there's no understanding of what college is, like at my, there's no baseline, right, in my family. I was the first person who graduated from college in my family. So, and I was just, I was a fuck up even in high school. I was just, I mean, probably what I was, what we'd now call neurotypical. I had a very hard time with executive functioning. I did not perform very well in traditional education environments. So I was just like failing all kinds of things in high school, you know, maths and gym and everything. You know, my parents were like, well, why don't you go to a technical college? Why don't you get your GED? Like, they didn't care if I went to, like, there was no, like, I wasn't one of those kids. Everybody else, like, SAT scores. They were like, mm, who cares? Um so I applied to a bunch of colleges and I got into one state school and I went and I took that same, you know, foundation of underachieving straight to college and just, you know, smoked a lot of weed and <laughs> never went to an 8 a.m. class and like had like a 0.5 GPA and eventually just like, you know, failed or really stoned out of college. Um, <laughs> and then 
I don't know. I was just following the family tradition. I uh, I got married when I was just turned twenty one, and I can't like I can't even tell you how much I cannot believe that I was that person. You know, twenty years later, I can't I can't believe I was in that marriage. I he was Pennsylvania Dutch. <laughs> that is a whole thing. No offense to the Pennsylvania Dutch, but it was not for me. Like we lived in kind of Amish country. It, he was, you know, a, a very limited person in a lot of ways. And I, into that marriage was really the wake up call for me. Into that marriage was the moment where I was like, oh no, I have, I have made many mistakes. And um, that was when I started to build my life for me. You were a college dropout. You left your first husband and your car literally broke down while you were driving out of the driveway to get out and kind of start this new life. Yeah. You know, we have these lives and they're messy and they're complicated and they're happy and they're sad and all of these things. But there are these few defining moments in your life and they're they're not usually what you think they're going to be. And for me, the build up of I'm in this really unhappy marriage. I'm really young. I'm at this point, I think, 24 and I have nothing. I have no education. I have no marketable skills. I have no money. I'm dependent on this person who I don't love anymore. And I was so scared. And so the courage that it took to leave him and pursue a new life was one thing. Then when the car broke down in the driveway and it was winter and I was just sitting in that car and I just thought, this can never ever happen to me again mm-hmm. and it never has you know so the, that moment meant a lot to me I think it's really interesting it's like the symbolism of that and you could have just said all right I'm gonna go back to this life and what I know or be resilient and push through and those are really difficult decision making moments uh, in anyone's life and and so what what happened after that I started living intentionally, right? So I started looking at schools. I started thinking about what I wanted to do. What do I like? What What am I okay at? You know, and so I started looking at schools. I applied to a school in a different city than we were living. I got into that school. I said to him, you need to get a job because I'm going to this school. I started living with real intention and real force. Mm-hmm. And we wound up moving to Boston together. I went to a school in a program that was right for me finally. Um, which was Emerson College writing literature publishing. It really had a lot going in it, you know? It taught you the business of publishing, but it also had a lot of creative work, so it was perfect for me. Um, And he was secondary to all of this because I put myself first. And so, you know, then just sort of things started rolling for me. You know, I I wound up leaving him. I, I waited tables six days a week, went to school full time. It took two years. It was not easy, but I knew I was doing it for myself, which is so thrilling when you are achieving something and you can see the end of that achievement. And, you know, I was too naive to understand that, oh, getting the degree is not going to be the hardest part. It's going to be getting the job. But at that point, it was like, well, yay this at least. Right. 
I think that I think we're all naive when we enter college, and we yeah. we think that like I'll go to this great school, I'll graduate with awesome grades, internships, you know, check, 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 yeah, and then real life happens, and it's a bit of a dizzy. No, it's the confidence of ignorance, and it's divine when you're living in it. <laughs> it so. is divine. <laughs> That's right. Um, so you you get into Radcliffe Publishing Course, which later became the Columbia Publishing Course, um, but you had to make a pretty big sacrifice to even make that happen. Uh, what, I mean, do you see that as a turning point, another turning point? Well, yes, right. So so I get out of, I graduate college. It's, you know, it's, it's fireworks don't go off. Nothing happens. What? <laughs> exactly. And what I realized was I needed professional connections because that was really the place where I had, I had nothing. And I was all, all older, right? So at this point, I'm 27, 28, and I'm looking for my first job. And I'm in, I'm not even in New York yet. So... The thing about Radcliffe Publishing Course and now Columbia Publishing Course is it does give you an overview of, of the business of publishing. So magazine publishing, book publishing, now digital publishing. But it also gives you access to all of these people who are very influential in the business. And that was what I needed. And it was quite a bit of money for me. I forget how much exactly, but it was in the thousands. And um, you know, I didn't have anybody I could call up and say, hey, lend me $5,000. So I had to, I think I had to work double shifts like around the clock as a waitress for like three months before I did it, Um, which is fine because I was young and I could do it. You know, Mm -hmm. it was just like, again, okay, I know I need to make this much money. And, but that was wound up being a very smart, it was lucky that I got in. And the fact that I went for that was very smart because I did have all those connections. Then I had a baseline, right? I could oh, do you remember? I could email people. I remember I met you. And at least there was a foot in the door when I had nothing. I mean, it still wound up being, which I'm sure we're going to talk about at some point, but it still wound up being 23 interviews before I got a job. Yeah, that's actually my <laughs> next question. <laughs> right. 23 interviews, which means 23 rejections. Like Knowing how far you've come in your career now, it's almost hard to believe that. I mean, you must kind of love that story also looking back. When I le- so when I when I was writing the book, I started looking at, um, or actually when I was giving a keynote for something at one point, um, I was looking at old journals of mine because I wanted to remember what that felt like, and I didn't know how many interviews it had been until I looked back at this old journal, and yeah, it was terrible, but I had no understanding of the working world, and I needed to go through all of those interviews to understand what was needed of me in that situation first off i'm so glad i didn't get any of those other jobs (laughs) because they were not the right jobs for me and that's important totally Mm -hmm. but i was asking the wrong questions i was presenting in the wrong way i was just trying to win people over i mean i was dressed inappropriately and all of that and that's funny to think about just me being in this just black polyester suit in the middle of august in new york city just like schlepping from what like it's funny for me to think about that person and being so alien to me now. Um, and it's also funny for me to think about how formal I was in interviews and how inappropriate. But I'm so glad I had that exercise. Who gets that in their lives, you know? And then the thing was, is I had all but given up. Like, I had no money left. I had to move back in with my parents. I was commuting at that point from Philly to New York for these interviews, like my dad dropping me off. I'm almost 30 years old, you know, like, (laughs) see you later. Good luck, baby. Here's an apple, you know. And 
I knew my commitment in that moment. I knew I really wanted it. I'd been tested and I knew I wanted it. So, you know, that, in that way, it was good too. What kept you from not giving up? I mean, after 23 interviews, I would think that anybody would be at a point where no matter how motivated you were when you started, you would start to question, like, maybe maybe I should switch gears. Especially media. Like, you could have switched into, like, a different industry, too. Yeah. No, I was too pissed off. I mean, I was, I was pissed off and I was humiliated. And I think sometimes, it was, you know, I say this in the book, sometimes, like, bad emotions can be really good motivators. And I was just, I was just like that, like, just angry. And I was like, why won't they let me in? And I was embarrassed. And just that sort of, like, stew really drove me, that emotional... I was fiery. I was like fired up because then I started to get, then I started to feel like, well, I'm not, they can't keep me out. I'm not going to let them, you know, I, I wanted to, I wanted revenge almost. I, I can completely understand yeah. that. You're like, I'm going to stick with it just because I'm going to show you. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you eventually get a job. Yes. <laughs> How did that happen? So it's the last job interview. And again, it was a connection, right? So it was a connection at... The Radcliffe Publishing course, there was this woman, and she's so wonderful, uh, Sarah Nelson. She works at HarperCollins now, and and we see each other sometimes still, and and she's just a lovely human being. And she saw something in me at the Radcliffe Publishing course. Like, I had been engaged and asking questions and, you know, really putting myself out there. And she was working at Inside.com, which I still don't know that I know exactly what they did. (laughs) Even though I worked there. I have a first job like that. You know? And it <laughs> yeah. was like it was like a, a website. It was about the business of media, but it was also a magazine. So they called me in for a job. She contacted the head of the Radcliffe Publishing course. Do you have anybody? Sarah put in a good word for me. The assistant liked my cover letter. I got the interview. The guy who was interviewing was just wonderfully cranky. I was very cranky. We were in a hot room. He like made fun of my college because he'd never heard of it. And I was like, just because you haven't heard of it doesn't mean it's not a good school. So I was like, done. I just sassed back. And it worked. And we really liked each other. You know, that means so much to this process is chemistry. Yes, it does. I knew when I was leaving. And it is that feeling where, you know, all these times in our lives, we're like, I don't know. I don't know if I got the job. And you're waiting. But you know. You do. Because when it's a positive experience, it feels differently. And it feels, it's elevated. It's energetic. It just feels very different. And this felt different. I knew he liked me. I could see at the end of the interview that he was excited. I could see he was relieved. You know, he asked me about getting home on the train, and he asked me some questions about what the next couple of days of my life looked like. And I thought, well, he wouldn't be asking if he, you know, this isn't polite talk anymore. And he called me the next day. And it was so perfect. And I do, I don't, I'm not necessarily a religious person, but I do believe in some sort of order of the world, you know, I didn't know what that website was, but there were so many smart people working there, including David Carr, who is a brilliant New York Times journalist who died a few years ago, unfortunately. And he taught me so much just in like our smoke breaks, Mm -hmm. you know, just being adjacent to really brilliant people. And I transcribed a lot of their interviews. And this was work I couldn't have gotten in any of those 23 jobs that I didn't get. Did you have a moment where you 
you just stopped and said, I'm going to really enjoy this. I've worked so hard to get here. You know, you were kind of mentioning like almost having like a spiritual moment about that. I mean, did you truly enjoy the, the win, so to speak? Oh, I totally did. I mean, especially when, you know, I moved into, I mean, what was a room that I could touch the walls of my bedroom from both walls on either side from my bed, but it was mine. Right. And... I, I mean, I definitely had, like, the Mary Tyler Moore, like, running out of the subway, running to the office, just just thrilled. Like, couldn't believe I didn't have to wait tables anymore. Couldn't believe I wasn't living in my parents' house. Like, just, and I was making so little money. I was making less in my first job in New York than I was all the years I was a waitress. But it didn't matter. doesn't matter. And none of it mattered. And I did have that moment, and I had real gratitude that I had that position. And I... I really cared and I I have tried to maintain that feeling and tried to not be too over things throughout my career because that's when uh, that's when so many bad things happen. I would agree with that and I you know your story kind of you, you've now broken into media and as you said I was feisty and I didn't I wasn't willing to give up but now that you're in there you work your way through it and I know you had not necessarily you, but media was having a rocky time. Yes. Uh, and you eventually make it to Lucky Magazine. Tell us a little bit about that because the, I think a lot of people are probably in industries that go through a lot of changes. And I, I'm kind of curious also, now that you've worked so hard to get in media, where you like, I'm not giving up on media and that's why you stuck with it also? I really like it. <laughs> that's crazy you know I really like it I I really enjoy it I really I really so many aspects of it even as it's changed and evolved and morphed into things I don't like so much and some things I like better you know there are things I like about digital media better than I like to print um I like writers I like editors I like copy editors I like designers uh, the people who tend to go into those kinds of careers are people that I identify with really strongly. I like finding a perfect headline. I really dork out on, you know, the leads of a story and, oh my God, you just, you just ended that story so beautifully. I consider it an honor, privilege to read writer's work for the first time. It feels like a secret, you know? Absolutely. And then I get to share that secret with the world. So once I got in... I was. It was so clear to me that I was in the right thing. Mm-hmm. You had found your home. I had found it, and there was even though I got bounced around quite a bit. You know, I got laid off. The places went under three times in a row. Three of the magazines I worked for, first three magazines I worked for, went under within months of me starting there, and got bounced around as a fact checker and a temp worker all throughout Condé Nast for about you know five years. I did not want to work at Lucky Magazine. I was not a fashion person at all. I, you know, I really looked down on the magazine at first. I think like a lot of people did. Like, oh, a magazine about shopping. Mm, thumbs down. Um, that's going to be stupid. But I really liked Kim France. And I was a sassy reader, like an obsessive sassy reader. And she's the kind of person that you just she's such an interesting unique really really smart creative person that anything she did was good and was quality and so I went to Lucky for her because she also really courted me hard 
she just really liked me and courted me and I got there and I was very unhappy because it was a, a kind of bitchy fashion magazine but she taught me so much that I would not trade all of that for anything because learning next to her and having her edit me made me a profoundly better writer and editor long term. So at Lucky, I went in as staff editor, which was a bullshit title um, that meant nothing, but that was the title that they were willing to give me. I also didn't understand negotiation then. I probably could have pushed for a slightly better one, but I didn't. Um, and there were things that I, I recognized in that job that I didn't know how to do that I wanted to know how to do. I wanted to manage people. I'd never done that before. I wanted to write a cover story. I started writing all, a lot of the cover stories. So I wanted an in-print byline. I wanted, so I wanted a different title. I wanted to manage people. I wanted an in-print byline. I wanted to be writing regularly. And I just started to ask for those things. And over the course of the three years, it was a bad job and it was toxic in many ways. But I got so much experience out of it. And by the end, I had checked everything off my list. I was the deputy editor of the site, which in those days at Condé Nast was a big deal. And then I left like three months later. And you went to Yahoo. And I went to Yahoo. And I, I th you said something about being at Yahoo that I thought was really interesting um, because you also... Well, you were managing people there. So one of my questions is, you know, you're the quote unquote misfit, weirdo, fuck up. <laughs> What's your leadership style? Like how, I mean, were you, I, I almost wonder if you come at it from an advantage of, you know, I'm not perfect. And so I'm going to come make up my leader. Like there was no preconceived notion or how's that changed? Well, I'm not very good at faking anything. So, I mean, I would say that in those days, I, I would not say I was the best manager. I've become a very, very, very good manager. Um, it's one of the things that I, I know that I know how to do well. Um, in those days, I was I was frustrated. I, was, I wasn't maybe as assertive as I should have been. I didn't say things as directly as I should have because I didn't want to hurt people's feelings. Um, but my strength was that I am and was then and am really empathetic and I I'm very intuitive about people because I'm so sensitive and so weird right and also there's no fuck up that you could have that I haven't done right so I I did then and I continue to have very honest conversations with people about where they stand with me what my expectations are of them but also, where do you want to go in your life? What are your goals? How can we use this job to set you up? I don't expect you to be here with me forever, and you shouldn't expect to be here forever. What do you need to get out of this job to move on to the next thing? Whether it's doing something similar or something wildly different, what do you need? What are you not getting here? Do you find that a lot of people know how to answer that? Not initially, but over time, if you keep pressing them and you have weekly meetings with them and you're consistent, eventually they do. And there's nothing more exciting than watching people start to discover that, than watching people find the things about their job that they actually love. And, you know, sometimes they're so boring to me, the things that people love. And it delights me to no end to watch those 
those sparks start to go off, you know? Absolutely. So I want to uh, fast forward in your career. So you were at Yahoo, um, and you eventually moved from New York to L.A. and come to Hello Giggles and, Sh- and recently Shondaland. How did that happen? Because I I think a lot of people um, want to be very deliberate about their career paths, and that's where the anxiety comes of what's my next move? What am I going to do right. next? Were you deliberate about that? I mean, you were at Yahoo, obviously, for many years. So I actually moved with Yahoo. Um, they had an L.A. office. And this was one of those situations where Hopefully in your life you have a supportive partner, an equal partner. My husband really wanted to try living in L.A. And we had a window of opportunity. He had a a very good job offer out here. And we decided to try it. He signed a two-year contract. Let's try it. Will your job move you? No, nobody's going to move us. We're going to move ourselves. But um, I can do this job out there. Um, And at that point, I was... Uh, you know, I wasn't so happy at Yahoo, but I had a lot of power. I had a really great title. I was making quite a bit of money. So it was an okay time for me to make the move because I wasn't looking to get out of Yahoo desperately. Um, and we moved out here. So yes, it was a deliberate move to let him try something and just to try living here, right? So it was, you know, if we move back, no harm, no foul. And then Hello Giggles was, and then we wound up loving LA and, and wanting to stay here. Hello Giggles was another very deliberate decision I made, and it was, I talk, I've talked about bad feelings in this one, I'll talk about bad feelings again. I was feeling very jealous. I was looking at the internet, and I was looking at the editors of, you know, women's websites that were scrappy and smart and, you know, had voice and audience and and good social media followings, and I was like, why am I at this, like, stodgy... And I also was starting to get promoted so much at Yahoo that my next move was going to be like paper pusher. (laughs) And I realized I still had a lot to give creatively and assigning stories and headlines and oh images and that I was starting to lose a lot of the job that I really loved. And that even the hands-on management that I was doing, I was going to start losing because I was going to have managers under me who were doing most of the management and I was just going to be managing the managers. And that trajectory, I started to play it out and I didn't like what I saw right it was like a lot of people like talking about like their airline points um which i'm sure the executives talk about other things than that but that was one of the things i observed like just a lot of like well then i'm gonna just gonna fly through singapore so i can get the points and then i'm gonna like i was like whoa do you have a yacht i can't i don't care (laughs) um so hello giggles i was just looking at hello giggles for a while and i was just sort of taking a step you know look at sitting in my seat and looking back and this looks interesting and they have voice but what is this website really but people seem to like it and i i I like it but what is it so i this is the only time i've ever done this i i reached out to the people who are running it and i said you got do you have an editor-in-chief because i'd be interested in being that if you don't and i i I reached out to them and then, I mean, it took really long time, like a year and a half, but then I got the job as the editor-in-chief of Hello Giggles and really had fun building that brand. It was all the things you were looking for. It was, you had a wish list. You were checking out the boxes. Exactly. I was so creatively engaged. I mean, and then I got burnout, but I was, 
I was editing so much. I was assigning so much. I was designing, you know, I was building posts. I was running all our social media accounts. Like at one point I was like a one woman show pretty much. And then I hired some people and we really built it and then we sold to Time Inc. I want to talk about your book because I we haven't quite gotten into it, but um, you decide to write a book while you're working at Hello Giggles. Yes. Uh, that sounds like you had a very full plate. Um, your book is called Weird in a World That's Not. Why did you want to write this? So I wrote it for me in a lot of ways. I had a lot to say, but I also wrote it because at the point where I considered writing it, I was the boss of and the mentor of lots of women in their 20s. And I was just watching their mishaps, right? The things they would make mistakes about. I remember having, I think this was a key moment for me in wanting to write the book. I remember having one employee who walked into my office with her desktop, with her LinkedIn account open, and someone was trying to poach her on LinkedIn. And she was very anxious about this. And she came in and she pointed to the screen and she goes, what do you think this means? And I said, well, somebody wants you to go work for them. I said, you know that I can't see this, right? Like, you don't have to tell me this. If you want to go work there, you could. So I realized like that she had no like fundamental education in terms of professional etiquette. Right. And I feel like I had quite a bit of education because I was an assistant for a while. I was in just more junior jobs for, for a couple of years. Yeah, and how do you get things. that? I was going to say, how, how the professional etiquette, no one's teaching that Nobody's teaching that. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, and this, is, this has been something that people have criticized in the book, but I don't care because I know it's important. I wanted to say, okay, this is what's bullshit. This is what's not bullshit. This is how to write an email and not sound like a crazy person. This is what you need to put in a cover letter and what you don't, but not in some like superwoman posing or not in some, in a way that, I couldn't hear it and people like me couldn't hear it because there's a way of talking to people that feels very condescending and didactic and I didn't want to do that right Mm -hmm. I wanted to be like I get it and I get you here are the fundamental things you need to know the rest is bullshit and that's why I wrote the book and people weren't getting that anywhere else I didn't feel like it or they were but like I don't know. I felt like kind of like there were two different kinds of career guides. The one is like, the one is like very professorial and dry and dense and like nobody wants to read it. And the other one is like, I'm just putting quotes and emojis everywhere and look at me and you know, I've got a, I have heels on and I look really sexy and I'm a, you know, bossed up. And I felt like both of those things did not were not resonating with me and I felt like I needed to write a book for people like me well and I'm curious what's your advice for women who feel like success is out of reach for them because they don't fit those molds I mean is that the whole point of this book is that look success comes in all different shapes and sizes it's however you define it I mean oh right I forgot that part yes (laughs) so the other so the, the third part of this was is that I was I had reached this level of success and it was it was objective. There was, there was no way I had big titles. I was, you know, vice president and I had helped sell it. Like, 
You were I was, successful. I was successful. We were all saying how successful Jennifer was. Right. I'm yes. successful. I did not feel like the images of success that had been put out there to me. I did not feel slick. I did not feel polished. I still felt awkward and sensitive. And, you know, before I went up and talked to 13,000 people, I was crying in the bathroom. And I wanted to show that success is messy and that you are not going to change your fundamental being when you're so in order to be successful you didn't need to change your fundamental being that i was successful and i was still almost exactly who i'd always been and i still had like stains on my pants you know i still was like ah i don't know what do you wear to this thing and that didn't have to be blown out and blazered and stiff and soulless. And, you know, and we also didn't have to be like men, that my sensitivity was not a, a weakness. It was a strength. Where do you think we went, like, so south with this idea, too? Like, I had the same, I have the same in- images in my head that you have of what success looks like. And I can specifically remember thinking, like, if I could just get that one job at that one company, I'll be successful. You right. know, on paper, I'll be successful. And so... It was like I was always working towards something that was based off of this image that and I don't I mean, where do you well, I think um, I think there's like a success porn, you know, I think there's like a thing of like, look at me, I'm strutting, you know, (laughs) and I mean, look, you can see it on the covers of women's business magazines. I mean, you can see it like, look at me just being all like dragon lady success lady this is what it looks like it's very 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 sleek but i also think so that so that's it because we also we have to be also sexy in our success which is also weird but that's another thing um i think that some of these myths around success came from us seeing the image of successful men and appropriating that and being like, well, this is what success looks like because this is what men are like who are successful. So we have to be this way. Right. And we're redefining that. And we're redefining image that. To, I guess, even the, the paper version of success. It's a fallacy. What do, you, what do you see as the real image of success? And how does being weird play a role in that? I think the image of success is knowing who you are and being who you are and being your authentic self sort of throughout every aspect of your life whether it's motherhood or marriage or your career i think it's identifying what it is that you really want and not checking off boxes you don't have to be a mother you don't have to be a millionaire you don't have to you know you don't have to wear dresses you don't you know all of these things who am i what is my authentic self what is my core value how do i monetize that core value that's success right right and then knowing what's enough. That's a really tough one. Because <laughs> it feels like it's never enough. It feels like we're just always working toward the next thing. Do you feel successful now? I do. Mm-hmm. I do. And I'm unemployed. And I feel <laughs> successful. <laughs> and you truly enjoy it. I do. You know, I, I, I left my job last month. And in the month, I mean, people are so freaked out by this. They... I have people on Twitter reaching out to me. Oh, my God, are you okay? I'm fine. I'm great. I missed my daughter so much. My daughter's eight years old, and her childhood is going by in a a blink. And, you know, I'm in a place in my life where I can take a breath. And I wanted to take a breath. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's interesting. Uh, this is like a, a completely different topic, but just there are a lot of. I read an article once. It was called the Ambition Collision. It was on the Cut, and what she basically talks a lot about is how women are working towards success, working, 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 working. We get to a point where we're just we're done. We have to opt out for a little bit and take a break. And uh, I don't know if there's a way to. And I'd love your thoughts on this. Like, can we be building towards success, but not have it be so much of a 24-7 sprint that then you get to the point where you just hit the wall and you're done? Like, can we make this something that we are consistently working toward, but taking care of ourselves, having time for our children? Right. I mean, so I think pacing ourselves Mm -hmm. is one thing, right? I think valuing skill over, you know, over status. Yeah. I mean, looking back now, now that you've written the book, what do you, what would you have done differently with your career? I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything differently, right? I mean, I I am where I am now, but now with the knowledge I have now, what I would do now is I'm sick of putting myself last. I am acutely aware of the fact that I am only on this planet for so long and I have chased success and I have chased status and I've chased all of these things. And right now I just want to chase contentment and a peacefulness in myself. And I don't want to feel like a failure for doing that. I was just going to ask, what's your relationship with failure like? I mean, everybody, everybody gets like a ding, a humiliation ding from failure you know absolutely it's more than a ding for some of us but it doesn't (laughs) define you it doesn't what defines you is the relationships in your life the the love that you give and receive it's all so stupid and cliche but i i want to figure it out and i don't want to be one of those people who figures it out when they're dying you know all those like fucking all the the, the the gifts from the dying, all the wisdom, and if I if I had it to do over, I don't want to be that, right? You know, I want to do it while like my legs still work, and I think that's a good goal. I can get on a plane and travel and see new things. I can, I can like sit down and like look at some bugs with my kid. These are important things. I can spend time with a friend. And not those like catch-ups where you're just like barely present. I want to be present. And I worked hard enough that I should be able to be. So I was going to say that, like to play devil's advocate here, someone might be listening and say, okay, that sounds great that we shouldn't chase, chase that type of success. We should be our authentic selves. But you were chasing success. Look how amazing your career was. You were well compensated for it, which is why you have the ability to totally. be unemployed and... Totally. Chase bugs with your daughter right now. 100%. I, you know, sometimes I think the advice, you, you know, you hear it and you're saying yes, yes, yes. But the reality is like, you got to pay rent, you know, you totally, if you define success in whatever way you want, there's still life stuff that's taking place there. 100%. 100%. And I, I realize how assholic all of that can sound. And I am in an amazing place of privilege that I worked very, very hard to get to and I want to enjoy. Right. And I, encourage people to do both to work hard but then also enjoy it and there's this this idea of like the balance right taking your vacation days yeah setting boundaries setting boundaries 
building your sort of personal resume as much as you're building this career resume. Not feeling guilty about focusing on yourself. I mean, I love, I love that self-care is such an important concept. You know, going to therapy, doing the sheet mask, when you can afford it, taking the vacation or not taking the vacation, just lying around, giving yourself space. I guess the thing, if I had to do it over, is I wouldn't have been so mean to myself. I think that was, I have to, I I need this break to just sort of work that out. Okay, I've got two last questions. If you could rename Meltdown, what would you call it? Oh man, I don't know. (laughs) Meltdown's just so good. Meltdown, I mean, I don't, what is, what is even a meltdown? I don't know. Uh, My mom, it's funny, we have a a saying where we call them woes me moments. Okay, okay. You know, meltdown, woes me, a bad day. I mean, we all have them. You're lucky if they're not, I guess, publicly displayed all over the internet when when you have them. But I, I think the world of, or exploring the world of meltdowns is sort of interesting. Like I, I really liked your story earlier where you could have given up when you went to New York and you got rejected 23 times, but those rejections fueled you to be feisty and, and keep going. And everybody's fueled differently by that. Yeah. I mean, obviously if you can find the silver lining, like that's what you should be looking for. Like, what does this mean for my life in a positive way? Because I mean, we all know it sucks, right? Gang rejected sucks, failure sucks. But how can you spin it in a way like, oh, that wasn't meant for me? You know, something else will be. That's the best way to spin it. The only way to spin yeah. it. Otherwise, it's just a cycle that turns into talking mean to yourself and but all the other things But it's also the truth. It is. It's also the truth. Something else will be right for you. You're not, you're probably not dying tomorrow. Something's going to happen. Speaking of what's going to happen, what is next for you in your career? So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm working on another book. I'm working on another book that I need to figure out a way to not make too dark because I don't want it to be like, everything is bullshit. You know, like <laughs> yeah. that's not a good title. Um, but I really do see the ambition monster in myself. And I want to write a book that sort of really interrogates that. Um, another sort of memoir, I think, work memoir advice hybrid. But yeah, I'm I'm thinking a lot about what it is to be an ambition monster. I love that. I think, uh, well, it will. You'll have to come up with an equally creative title because <laughs> weird in a world that's not it will be hard to beat. But I trust that you are a pretty good wordsmith with that. Well, thank you, Jennifer. This has been a great conversation, and I I really love that we were able to focus on a lot of the parts that I think many women can relate to, which is you're in this rush in this hurry to be successful and then the process you're just sort of miserable in it and how do we stop those cycles and um you know resources like your book and career contessa i think are great places for women to start and 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 your next book obviously hopefully we'll see what happens but thank you so much this was really this was really a pleasure i love i love having these honest conversations i i hope that everybody's having them privately too yeah absolutely so tell people where they can find you oh um, well, if you'd like to find me, I'm at Jen Romolini, J-E-N-N-R-O-M-O-L-I-N-I across all social media. And 
I also have a website, jenniferromolini.com, which I don't know, it used to be a wedding website. I've, I've built it badly. And also, um, you can buy my book. It just came out in paperback um, in May. That was Jennifer Romolini, self-proclaimed misfit, author of Weird in a World That's Not, a career guide for misfits, fuck-ups, and failures, and the former chief content officer at Shondaland.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Females. For more interviews and career advice from incredible women, check out careercontessa.com. We also offer other great resources like career coaching, a curated jobs board, profiles on female supportive companies, and on-demand career courses in our e-learning library. Seriously, we're a one-stop shop for your career success. And if you're feeling less than fulfilled at work, we've all been there. Try taking our unhappy at work quiz that can help you figure out just why that might be the case. The quiz is free and it's located in our show notes. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And I would be so grateful if you could rate us and review us. It's really helpful and valuable to see what you like about the show. Plus, we'll send you all the good karma vibes in return. And don't forget that we're super social on our Instagram channel at Career Contessa. And we'd love your help spreading the word about this podcast by mentioning it on your social media channels with hashtag the females podcast. You can expect a new episode of the females podcast every Tuesday. And you won't want to miss next week's episode featuring Aliza Licht, the executive vice president of brand marketing at Alice and Olivia, author of Leave Your Mark, and the voice behind the wildly successful and anonymous Twitter personality, DKNY PR girl. When I say no, I don't mean that if someone asked me to do something, I was like, no, I'm not doing that. That's not what I mean at all. It's not about deflecting workload or any of that. It was more about being strong enough in meetings or to creative directors or to CEOs and be able to say, I don't agree with doing that and here's why, as opposed to being a yes person because you're scared to be the opinion that's going against what senior management wants to do.